Good morning, everybody. Are you well? Oh, some of you are a bit hot. Have you done the marathon this morning, Val? Just feel like it, eh? So we don't know what's happening with the marathon, but just so you don't feel that you're missing out on it, just to let you know you're going to be needing your legs a little later. All right? So don't settle yourselves, don't settle those cheeks in too comfy on those cushions because you're going to be needing your legs a little later. If you're a visitor here this morning, we're a bit thin on the ground uh, to our normal turnout. We've got people in Australia, Africa, Skegness, Minehead, and uh, other far-flung places of this incredible universe. And uh, we've got a whole bunch of people at Spring Harvest, so do think about those this week. Leon's in Africa with Alison. And uh, again, continue to pray for those. So loads of our uh, posse are away, taking the light of Jesus, hopefully, wherever they go. Uh, But we're here. And God's here, isn't he? So we're going to see what he wants to say to us this morning. I'm going to be picking up the story. Uh, Those of you that have traveled with us for a little while so far will know that we did Jonah, didn't we? Jonah, Journey of the Heart, which was a four-week series. And now we've jumped into Jesus' Journey of the Heart, which is a four-part series that started with Dan last week. Um, You've got me today, and then you've got Leon, hopefully back from Africa on Good Friday, and then a whole mishmash of people next Sunday, and that will be our little four-parter in terms of Jesus' journey of the heart. And where we're going to pick up the story today is, is primarily in Luke 19. If you were with us last week, Dan uh, was in Luke 18, and I'm going to be picking up the story just kind of after where he left it. So where we were with Dan, just to give a bit of geography, okay, you need to really use your imaginations now. Uh, where we were with Dan in Luke 18 last week was about here. This was Jordan, okay, on the River Jordan, around the area of the River Jordan. And uh, that was Luke 18. Then since then, Jesus has come through to Jericho, uh, where he encounters Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus, which we looked at some while ago in the Grace Academy series. And now he's traveled around 15 miles and he's arrived at a place called Bethany, which is a couple of miles from Jerusalem. It's on the Mount of Olives. So this is where we're going to be picking up uh, the story today. And uh, as it's Palm Sunday and we're in Passion Week, that's kind of what I'm going to be taking you through approximately. It's a slightly different week, but that's what I'm going to be taking you through this morning. What's incredible about the Gospels is that if you kind of grab your Bibles, you will see that in the Gospels, for each one of them, approximately two-thirds, three-quarters of each Gospel talks about 33 years of Jesus' life. And then all of a sudden, the last third, the last quarter, is about, really, about a month, and primarily about one week. So you've got kind of this amount, which spans 33 years, and then you've got a fairly sizable chunk that just spans a week to a month. So it's pretty significant in the scriptures that we're going to be looking at in this next kind of week or so. So much of scripture in the Gospels is focused all around, proportionately around, uh, the week that we're going to head into. And we're going to look at Jesus' journey of the heart through a week of seven days, which is generally how they come. And it might be that as we go through how Jesus' heart journeyed through this particular week, some of it will connect with perhaps where you're at today, where you have been at, or perhaps what might be going on in your world. So we've got a little few props to um, help me and help you stay with me as it's getting nice and warm in here. 
I did kind of tease you and say we're going to Luke 19, but just to keep you on the edge of your seats, we're actually going to start in John 12. I think the scriptures are on your notes. If you've got your update sheets, you'll find the notes in there, which will again help you stay on track with me. We're going to read from John chapter 12. I like the sound of rustling that I'm hearing. I don't know whether that's sweetie papers or Bibles. Both is good. (laughs) Both. Just don't get sticky on your Bibles. Okay, John 12, starting at verse chapter 1. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, and also Mary Martha and Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. And this was only actually a short time ago. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a pint jar of expensive perfume made from pure nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, the disciples who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, however, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for me. You will always have the pure poor, but you will not always have me. Here we have three different followers of Jesus responding very differently to Jesus. We have Martha, who is busy with her domestic activity. We have uh, Mary, who is showing devotion. And we have Judas, who is really showing, although it doesn't appear that way, deceit. And I jotted down this little phrase, the appearance of irresponsible extravagance from Mary was actually extravagant devotion, and yet the appearance of responsible compassion from Judas was actually passionate deceit. We can be so fooled, can't we, by outward, you know, words and actions. You know, Martha, it's quite hard not to get these the wrong way around, Martha looked busy, looked like she was doing great things. Judas sounded like he was doing the right thing, but actually the one person who had the right heart was Mary. It's our devotion that primarily touches the heart of Jesus. So I've got some props, as I said, to help you stay with me, help you stay with me through, through, through the week. Now, I hope you're not going to get too distressed because it might mess with your head a little the way that this kind of shapes up, but you just need to hang with me this morning and it will all make sense. And if it doesn't, Dan will come and uh, mop it up later. So this is the journey. I'm going to take you through the journey of Jesus' heart through seven days. And the first day, oh, we've got a different PowerPoint to uh, slide. Sorry about that. That will be my fault. Um, So on Friday, we've got a heart that is moved. And the reason I put moved, um, yes, Jesus was anointed on the Friday. But um, it's more because I was touched by the fact that actually the thing that moved Jesus' heart the most was the devotion of Mary He wasn't moved particularly by Martha's activity and busyness. And yes, I'm sure his heart was affected by Judas's deceit. But actually the thing that moved and touched Jesus's heart the most was Mary's devotion. And I guess it challenged me to think, what are the things that I do that touches Jesus' heart the most? Is it my busyness and my activity and my fervor for the work of the Lord? Do I worry sometimes that my 
inconsistencies and my compromise and the things when I let God down, are they the things that touch his heart the most? But actually, the thing that really touches Jesus' heart the most is our devotion and how we show our devotion. And Matthew says it brilliantly. I know we're kind of, I'm trying to say we're going to Luke 19. I know we've already been to John and now we're in Matthew. We will get to Luke 19. But Matthew 26 says it fantastically. Same piece of scripture, but says it slightly different. Matthew 26, verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Truly, I tell you, Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What an amazing comeback from Jesus there when Mary has poured a a year's worth, it it was equal to a year's wages of perfume, and these were not rich people. She'd poured a year's wage worth of pure exotic, expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus. And Judas particularly is, is, you know, annoyed at that and berating her for that and Jesus' comeback is leave her alone what she has done for me is a beautiful thing and it made me think I wonder how much of what I do and say is a beautiful thing to Jesus that touches his heart that's moved by my devotion if you're wondering what is the thing that's going to touch the heart of God it's going to be your devotion not your busyness not even your sin but the thing that will touch him and bless him will be your devotion to him. Perhaps like Mary, your devotion will be told throughout the world, like it said in those scriptures, or maybe you will just fill the air around you with the fragrance of Jesus. Wouldn't that be a great thing? In how we are devoted to Jesus, the fragrance of the air around us changes. You know, the scripture says the whole house was filled with the fragrance. Wouldn't it be great if our houses, our workplaces, our streets, our communities, we were filled with the fragrance of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 2, it says, through us, that's you and me, okay? There's a clue there, us, you and me. Through us, God spreads everywhere the fragrance of him. We are to God the aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And the thing that will affect our aroma the most will be our devotion to Jesus. So Jesus' heart journey of this week on the Friday, he's anointed and he's moved by, his heart is moved by the devotion of Mary. And Saturday, okay? Saturday, you'll, you can look through your scriptures while I'm prop moving. But you won't find anything in the Gospels that tell you anything about Saturday. And the reason being, Saturday was Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. And I've put for this one the fact that Jesus' heart was at rest. Jesus' heart was at rest the Jewish Sabbath was called Shabbat, and uh, the Jewish people took that from uh, the creation story in Genesis, but also from laws that were in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where the Jewish people were instructed to maintain the Saturday as a Sabbath, as a day of rest, a day when they would focus on God and they would do nothing else. And I think it's incredible, bearing in mind where Jesus is headed at the end of the week, that he is able to be quiet. There's no mention of him in scripture. He's not telling parables. He's not uh, running around trying to see people. He's not busy with activity with so much that he's got to get done. We had a funny moment in uh, devotions a couple of weeks ago when uh, one of the team was talking about the fact that they were going on a long trip. And uh, they were talking about the intricate details of how they plan for a trip. And they have a spreadsheet 
that has everything on. The shopping list, the packing list, the flight details, the where they're staying, what the itinerary is, emergency phone numbers. It is anal to the nth in its detail. And I felt for this particular staff member because as they were sharing, I could see the kind of humour in the room mocking this person for their detail and their um, conscientiousness. And I was thinking, I love you. You're worse than me. I've never met somebody less OCD and detailed than me. I love you. And I said that to her afterwards. I said, thank you for sharing that. I feel quite normal in comparison. I like to-do lists. They are great. And I think if I uh, was Jesus and I was on Saturday, knowing I had less than a week to live, my to-do list, my itinerary, my plan, my detail of what I wanted to still accomplish would have been long. I don't think, I'd have thought, well, I get it's Saturday, I get that it's Sabbath, but not this time. I've got a few days left. I need to get busy. I need to get sharing. I need to get telling parables. I need to start healing and resurrecting and challenging and confronting and comforting and any other C words. I need to be do, do, do. And yet there's an incredible silence in the gospel about Jesus, the fact that actually there was a heart that was at rest, that was at peace. Big challenge, isn't it, to us? That when we've got so much going on around us, so many things challenge us, so many things ahead that are frightening, so many things that concern us, so many things that worry us, so many pressures, that we can have a heart that is at rest. Now, I did warn you I was going to get you jogging. Better get you now because it's getting very hot in here. So up to your feet, everybody. Those of you that can, if you can't, you are absolutely excused from this activity. Some of you are choosing that you can't. I'm not impressed with that. If you are physically able to stand this morning, please do it. And if you're not, that's absolutely fine. And I want you to jog. Jog with me. Jog, 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 jog. Come on, let's jog. It's London Marathon. Mile one. Mile two. Mile two and a quarter. You're fitter than the nine o'clockers. I'm making you go longer. Mile 26. Mile 26.1. 26.2. I don't know how long it goes. Tim, how long's a marathon? I can't hear you. 26.2. And a half. 26.3. Okay, you can sit down. Okay, if you've got a pulse still, try and find it. Feel your pulse. You're all too tired to raise the arms, it would seem. I suspect, if you're as unfit as I am, it's beating a bit faster. Now, I'm not sure if that's from the jogging or the trauma that I've just put you through. Now, those of us that are athletic, I do not include myself in that. Those of those on the staff that are athletic, Rachel Jewson and Chris Neville, who do a bit of running, along with a whole posse of others, I asked them about this in the week because they're the informed people on all such things. And they tell me, (laughs) if you're fit, now they tell me that, you know, your fitness is not just about how fast you can go or how far you can go. But actually, one of the measures of how fit you are is how quickly your heart returns to normal 
heart rate, what is normal for you. Resting, it's called resting heart rate. And that apparently is when you're sleeping, is your resting heart rate. I thought it was just sitting in a chair. But no, it's actually when you're lying down and have been rested for a while. That's your resting heart rate. And if you do activity and exercise, a level of your degree of fitness is to do with how quickly does your heart return from being speeded up, whether it's through activity or whether it's through stress, anxiety, pressure, um, whatever. Anything that raises your heart rate, uh, you know, the, the kind of speed that it can return is an indicator of your health. And the thing that struck me about this was the fact that Jesus' heart, in spite of all that was going on around him, was at rest. And it just challenged me, and I guess I'm challenging you because it's a a fair challenge, in that if physically it's an indicator of my physical health and fitness to do with how quickly my heart returns to rest, how quickly spiritually is it an indicator of my spiritual health or how quickly do I return to rest? When I'm concerned or worried or stressed or panicked or when life hits me, and I don't know what's going on. How quickly, from my heart rate being raised, does it return to rest? I think is an indicator, do you not think, of my faith, my trust, my spiritual health. And here we have a great indicator, don't we, of Jesus who has a heart that is at rest just moments before the big week really starts. Jesus' heart was at rest. So Sunday, that's today. Yay! Palm Sunday. Very different day. Jesus gets up from Bethany, where he's still staying with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And he starts to head towards Jerusalem. It's known in the scriptures as Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. And I'm going to read from Luke 19. Yay! Luke 19. We got there. So Luke 19, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to start at verse 28. After telling this story, Jesus went on towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As they came to the town of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead of him. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying that colt? Say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As they rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When they reached the place where the road starts down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Now it's quite hard, although those scriptures are probably familiar to us, the triumphal entry, uh, the kind of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth scenes that you might have seen with him coming on the donkey and people waving Uh, palm branches and laying cloaks on the floor that that may kind of conjure up in your mind an image and actually probably what we do imagine still falls short hugely of what actually took place on the day and I want you to imagine what two weeks Friday or week Friday will be like in London when a certain royal carriage makes its way away from the church 
you kind of get an image of what it would have been like for Jesus coming on a donkey. It's estimated that around the time there would have been three million people in Jerusalem at that time. Three million. Because what happened was every year there was the Passover people, the Jewish people would come to the temple and they would come to Jerusalem. And a Roman governor uh, shortly after, not actually on this day, but shortly after this particular Passover, decided to do a count of the Passover lambs that were slain at Passover. And he counted them to be a quarter of a million. Lost me notes. Yeah, a quarter of a million lambs. And as one lamb was shed for every 10 people, it's estimated, therefore, that it was at least two and a half million people in Jerusalem. Now, I'm not saying they were all lining the streets for Jesus, but I think it gives you a slightly different perception, a slightly different window in just what may have been as Jesus entered in. The noise and the celebration and the dust and the palm branches and the cloaks and just the bedlam at one sense. And right in the heart of that is Jesus rising on a donkey. And so what I've put here, and I'm going to explain this in a slightly more obscure one, was that I feel that Jesus demonstrates... A heart that operates with a different beat. A heart that beats to the sound of a different drum. Let's read something else that happens just after. We've read this extraordinary entry, this arrival, this celebration, this you know, riding high. It's like high days and holidays for Jesus, this, this euphoria. And then as, as I was saying, he comes to Bethany, he comes to the Mount of Olives. And then just as he comes over the precipice of the Mount of Olives, starts to head down towards Jerusalem, the scriptures tell us something very different happened in the heart of Jesus. And I'm picking it up at verse 41. I can't read it in my Bible, it's too small, hence me checking my notes. But as they came closer to Jerusalem and Jesus saw the city ahead, he began to weep, saying, How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity of salvation. Quite a sudden change here in the heart of Jesus. It's gone from this celebration, this euphoria, this adoration to suddenly he catches a glimpse of Jerusalem and everything within him begins to to mourn and to grieve and to weep. Quite a roller coaster in just a matter of moments. And I'm sure some of you can relate to that when at one moment life is so fantastic and then the next minute it's suddenly very different and very dark. And the reason I've put the fact that I feel for Jesus on his journey of heart was that his heart beat differently was because of these few things. When you, when you look back to what we've read about him sending for the donkey, there's, there's no attempt there to impress the owner. Now if it was me, because... I'm clearly not anything like Jesus. I would have gone, go get the donkey. And if they ask, why are you taking it? Say, oh, well, it's for so-and-so. And she's really important. And she's going to make this big procession into the town. And there's going to be lots of people cheering and waving. So make sure it's a really nice donkey. And uh, make sure it's nice and clean. And uh, there'd be something in me that, that would want you know, the person to know just how important I am. Whereas Jesus just says, just say, Simply, the Lord needs it. 
end of. No big speech, no big explanation, no big bigging it up. Just say, I need it. End of. There's something very different about that heart, isn't there, than perhaps some of ours when we want validation and affirmation. Secondly, he came in peace, not power. And this is quite significant in the way that Jesus came in. Many of you will know this. When a king ever entered a town or a city, he came in a ginormous procession. When Caesar or Alexander the Great entered a city, generally it was the kind of standard for them to come with uh, 1,000 lancers on horses, followed by 2,000 trumpeters, followed by 1,000 soldiers with swords, followed by 30,000 foot soldiers, followed by 1,000 trumpeters bringing up the rear. You've got 35,000 people in your entourage. Now, I know some of these celebrities have, you know, riders and... and, uh, you know, diva lists of what they require and their entourage and bodyguards could be quite large. But this was something, 35,000 people to arrive you somewhere. It was all about power and prestige and victory and triumph and how fab am I? And actually Jesus arrives rather on a horse that was a sign of victory and triumph and power. He comes in on a donkey that's about peace. Very different arrival, even though he was a greater king than any of those. Thirdly, he mourns for those who've missed who he really is. When I read about Jerusalem, he talks about the fact that they saw it and yet they didn't get it. He mourns over the fact that they could have known who he was, what it was all about, and yet they missed him. He grieves for the lostness of people, that the fact they've missed who he is, the fact they didn't get it, they didn't understand. He's not angry or disappointed or judging. He's just mourning the fact that they didn't really get what it was all about. Fourthly, he weeps over the following, sorry, the forthcoming destruction of Jerusalem rather than his own. He is heading towards his own terrible death, and yet he weeps over a city that's about to be destroyed. Again, there's some harking back there to the story of Jonah, isn't there? And God's heart for the people of Ninevite. And uh, incredible, I think I would be more bothered about my own week that was coming ahead. But no, he is more touched by the forthcoming destruction of a lot of people and Jesus, Jerusalem and the temple and what's about to happen than his own destruction. And finally, he grieves for the consequences of our sin rather than looking for our judgment. And that really spoke to me when he, I, I read about how he grieved over Jerusalem and actually there were going to be consequences for their sin. And actually that saddened God, that saddened Jesus, that they were actually going to have to live with the consequences of what they'd done. See, I tend to think when I do things wrong, God's primarily wanting to tell me off. But actually, the thing that touches his heart the most is his sadness for what the consequences may be for me. Isn't that remarkable? If you really think about that. When we let God down, when we do wrong, when we sin, when we don't get it, when we mess up, and actually God's mostly affected by the pain that that will then bring us rather than looking for our punishment and telling off and judgment. So Jesus has a heart that beats very differently. So we've done three days, we've got four to go. You with me still? The last ones are slightly quicker, just to give you a bit of hope. So we're on Monday. Monday I've called a heart that stands up. On Sunday night, Jesus returned to Bethany, back to Lazarus, Martha and Mary. Next day, Monday, which will be tomorrow equivalently, he gets up, heads into the temple, which is pretty much what he did the next three days. But he goes to the temple, which 
everybody was heading for, everybody was heading to the temple to be cleansed, to be purified in readiness for the Passover. But when Jesus arrives at the temple, what he sees is something quite abhorrent to him. What he doesn't see is people being purified. He sees people making a profit. And there's something within him that rises up in righteous anger about what he sees. In Luke 19, it says, quite simply, 1945, he began driving out those that were selling. And in the John version, in John's gospel, it's a lot more dramatic. It talks about cattle and doves and sheep and those that were exchanging money for dodgy rates. And that actually Jesus went round with a whip and drove them out. This was no passive kind of, please, would you leave now? This was a standing up for what was right and an action that followed that heart response. And I experienced a minor version of this in Lidl. Now, you know how much I love Lidl. Some of you, you think, what the heck she's going on about? But some while ago when I spoke, I talked about uh, experiencing Lidl, the shop. Well, I had another one this week. I've got some, my parents staying with me this week, and I've been doing shopping for about six months in readiness for them coming. And uh, I popped to Lidl, and... Um, I only had about three items, it was a good day, three items, and I'm heading towards the queue, and uh, the person that's sort of on the conveyor belt is nearly, nearly at the barrier, you know, the little plastic things you put across, just heading towards, you know, and there's a little lad, looks about ten, with a ginormous trolley full of food, and I'm coming up with my three items, looking at the gap, looking at the trolley load, looking at the lady that's nearly finished, looking at the lad clocks, his mum's not with him, just his little sister, and I made a beeline for the gap, put my things on the, you're already tutting, it gets worse, put my three items on the trolley, and barely had I put them down, when the little lad turns to his sister, and in a very loud voice says, she pushed in, (laughs) I took my, I work at Zion Christian Centre badge off, at that point, replace it with my name is Alison Evans. <laughs> Leon, you're loving this on the podcast. So, I was in Lidl, I pushed in, and uh, the um, little lad says to his sister, in increasing agitation as I'm trying to do the la la la, haven't heard you, um, she pushed in, I'm going to tell mummy that woman pushed in, she pushed in. Like, okay, so I looked at him with a kind of please be quiet. I've only got three items. I'm a nice person. Um, And then his mum returned and he went, mummy, that lady pushed in. We were next in the queue. And I thought, gosh, there's something that's really risen up, isn't there, in that young lad about the injustice of it all. So I did apologize to his mum. I said, he's quite right. I have pushed in. I'm really sorry. Um, And she said, oh, it's fine. You've only got a few items. Clearly a Christian. And... uh, (laughs) There was me put in my place. So, um, but I, it made me smile because I thought, gosh, as much as I thought, oh, come on, little lad, it's only three items. It's not a big deal. And your mum's not even here. And you're going to be there a while. And I'm, I'm going to be through before you've even started unloading. And, you know, and yeah, I thought, how ridiculous. I'm like that. I am that little boy so often. that There's something, when I have the slightest little injustice done to me, there's something that can quite easily rise up within me. 
Now, I have something in my heart that's a good thing about injustice. It's a big passion of mine and something that gets me angry and something that rises up with me when I see or hear about injustice. That's a good thing. But often, more often than not, it's my own issues that it rises up against. And I want to stand up and say, well, you've not treated me right. Have you not spoken to me right? Have you not dealt with me fairly? And I can quickly stand up for my rights. But I'm really challenged by this to say, do I spend more of my time standing up for trivia than for truth? Whereabouts in my life, how many times do I stand up for some really insignificant, itty-bitty thing? And how much do I stand up really for the things of God? When I see injustice, when I see God's name taken in vain, when I hear people swearing, I mean, there's not great words out there anyway in the swearing world, but when they, you know, when they defame the name of God and they, something jars within me, but what do I say? Would you mind not using that language or do I just keep quiet? When I see, you know, the things of God being used wrongly or God's name used, just things done wrongly in the name of God, when do I stand up for that? It really challenged me. You know, that Jesus stood up for the really important things. I think I stand up a lot of the time for silly stuff. And actually, as a Christian, I should be standing up more and more for some good things. Let me read you this story about battleships. I want to make one final comment on this issue. Two uh, battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at sea on manoeuvres in heavy weather for several days. I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all the activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing on the bridge reported, light bearing on the starboard side. Is it steady or moving astern, the captain called out. The lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant we were on a straight collision course with the ship. The captain said to his singleman, signal that ship, we are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came the signal. Advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send. I am a captain. Change course 20 degrees. Back came the reply. I'm a seaman, second class. You better change course 20 degrees. By that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, send this message. I am a battleship. Change your course 20 degrees. Back came the reply, I am a lighthouse. (laughs) The battleship changed course. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it, to know what we should be movable on, what we should change course on, and what we should stand firm on. But Jesus calls us to be the light of the world, doesn't he? He says, you're a city on a hill, a light that shouldn't be under a bushel. We carry the light of the world. Where do we stand firm and say, we on this issue are not changing course. You're going to have to maneuver around us because what we contain, what we have, what we know, who we honor, who we follow is more important. If we're going to be people that stand up in our hearts, make sure we're standing up for the right things. Tuesday. Tuesday, a heart that continues. Tuesday again, Jesus returns to the temple, cleared it the day before, had his altercations with a few people, and he, oops, he returns the next day. And I put continues because here, Jesus just continues to do what he's always done. He's a couple of days away from the most trialing time of his life. 
And yet we find in all the Gospels a huge now chunk of Scripture. In Luke, it's, it's two whole chapters and endless, sorry, and yeah, and endless verses. And there's just a wealth of teaching in there all on Tuesday. It's a busy day for Jesus Tuesday, two days away from uh, Gethsemane. And yet he continues to do all he's ever done. He continues to invest. He continues to tell parables. He continues to describe things. He continues to give insights into the kingdom of God. He continues to touch people's lives and heal them and speak into them and encourage them and comfort them. There is loads of scriptures that follow on Tuesday. So it's again two days away from D-Day and yet what does he do? He just carries on carrying on, doing what he was called to do, being true to himself. And I thought, man, I'm, I'm not always that when something's looming. Sometimes I can lose perspective. Sometimes I get distracted. Sometimes I can't focus on really what I should be doing in terms of following God. Jesus had a heart that continues. I think for me, I would have been trying to bring some closure. I'd have been trying to wrap things up, say goodbye to people, make sure they understood where the keys were. <laughs> You know, those silly, itty-bitty things. I'd have been wanting to bring closure, and yet Jesus just goes all out there and starts opening things up and challenging and provoking and instructing and investing. He continues to stay true to his calling. Last couple of days then, as we close. Wednesday is similar in some respects to Saturday. Saturday, I mentioned, was quiet in Scripture. It was the Sabbath, the day of rest, and there's nothing much mentioned. Similarly, this is a quiet day in terms of the commentary on Jesus. There's nothing written in scriptures at all about Wednesday, what Jesus did. It's assumed that he continued in the temple, continued teaching, preaching, touching people's lives. And yet, there's nothing else recorded about what Jesus actually specifically did that day. But one thing we know is very significant about the days, it's the day that Judas betrayed Jesus. I'm just going to read you Luke 22, starting at verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples. And he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Very difficult day for Jesus knowing that this was happening. I'm sure one of his friends betraying him. And uh, on uh, Patricia will know this. On Tuesday, we had a great exa- uh, time. Uh, Andrew Harwood and Patricia Evans uh, run an ESOL class in our community zone. They, they help uh, students of other languages um, learn English. And Andrew had asked me to go in to uh, do kind of a gospel presentation to them. Most of them, they're from Iran, Iraq, um, Hungary, Morocco, uh, Sweden. 
and Congo. It's quite a mishmash of nationalities and faiths and beliefs and colours and culture and everything. And Andrew had asked me to go in and uh, do a presentation on the gospel and tell them about Easter. And obviously he said, make sure you do it in very basic English because of the the level of understanding. So I did my best to kind of do uh, this presentation in, in very easy English until we got to this particular part in the story. And I said, and then... Um, Judas, who was one of Jesus' disciples, betrayed him. And I saw this complete confusion go around their face and I went, betrayed. Do you understand betrayed? No. And there was silence and I thought, how the heck do I explain betrayed? Betrayed. Disappointed, let down, doesn't quite say it. Knife in the back, how do I say that? You know, all this. And then a little lad, um, who's uh, a lad called Abdul, he's a Muslim lad, he came because of being on holiday, he came with his parents, he put his hand up and he said, uh, and I wrote it down somewhere, uh, betrayed is, he said, betrayed is when someone who is your friend treats you as though you were their enemy. I said, well done, Abdul, come and help me teach the class. <laughs> Seven years old, I thought, what a great explanation for betrayed. When someone who is your friend treats you as though you were their enemy. Isn't that a brilliant description of betrayed? The great thing was, he kind of knew the story better than me, it seemed. He kept going, you've missed the bit about the crown of thorns. And I was trying to keep it really simple. And you've missed the bit about the cock crowing. I'm like, oh gosh. And I said, where do you go to school? And he said, uh, Hells Open C of E. I thought, oh. Good on that school. Good on that school. Good on those teachers. And the irony is of this betrayal is that here we have on Wednesday Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was in those days the price of a slave. It was the slave price. If you were selling a person as a slave, that was the price. So here we have Judas, one of Jesus' followers, selling Jesus' life as a slave for a pittance. And yet five days earlier, we have another follower of him, pouring out a year's wages of perfume on his feet in devotion. It's incredible how two different people can respond so very differently to the person of Jesus. One can pour out this extravagant love and somebody else can, for a pittance, sell somebody away. Very, very difficult day for Jesus So I guess what I'm saying on this day is Jesus understands the pain of betrayal. You know, the scriptures do tell us there's nothing that Jesus doesn't understand about our lives and the things that we feel. And some of the things we think, well, he couldn't understand this. And I think here we have an example of one of the things that Jesus understands what it is to be stabbed in the back, what it is to be let down, what it is to have a friend treat you as though you were their enemy. But what's remarkable, I think, more so about the heart of Jesus on this day is something else it says a little later in Scripture. I'm not trivialising or doubting or underplaying just how impacted Jesus' heart would have been by Judas's betrayal. But if you flick over to, um, well, actually slightly later in chapter 22, at verse 21, just slightly later in that same chapter, Luke 22, when they're at the Last Supper, Jesus says, But here at this table, sitting among you as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. Here is an amazing verse. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? Now, why did he say that? I think, personally, it's another glimpse into the heart of Jesus that, yes, 
He is impacted by our betrayal. He is disappointed. He is devastated. But there's something really remarkable about this, that even in that, the bigger heart of Jesus, that he feels sorry for what that does to us. Isn't that incredible? That we may betray Jesus, and yes, that hurts him and disappoints him, but actually the thing that impacts his heart the most is actually the sorrow and the sadness for us of what that means for us, what that does to us. Incredible, absolutely incredible. Jesus had a heart that was betrayed. And finally, Thursday, Thursday. I think on your notes, I've just put this down as last for a few reasons. It's the last point of me talk. It's kind of the, the day when the last supper happens. Some of the last words that Jesus says, some of his last steps are taken. And I'm sure if you watch any of the marathon a bit later, one thing you'll notice is very apparent for most of the athletes, irrespective of how fit they are, is they start out very strong, don't they? When the gun goes or the whistle goes, their first steps are pretty impressive. But then, a few hours later, when you see them coming down the mall, the steps aren't quite as impressive or as athletic or as strong, are they? For some of them, it's, it's a really hard last few steps, isn't it? And they're feeble and they're weak and they're difficult steps. And yet, when we look at the life of Jesus in the last week, we see Jesus heading towards the tomb with steps still as strong as when he set out. Because if you look back in Scripture to Luke 9, I think it's Luke 9, 51, it says there, which is way back in time, way back in Scripture, it says that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Key word, resolutely, he set out. His first steps towards Jerusalem were strong. They were resolute. And here we find him moments before it's all going to happen and his steps are still resolute to the end. Why do I say that? Because of this dialogue that goes on between him and God in Luke 22, verse 42. Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is agonizing. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's agonizing about what's coming before him. And he says to God, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering from me. Then what does he do? He takes a resolute step that says, yet not what I will, but your will be done. How strong is that step? It's a resolute step, isn't it? That was as resolute and as strong as the day he started out. Max Licardo, who's a Christian writer, says this, love goes the distance. Love goes the full distance. Jesus traveled from limitless eternity to be confined by time and order and sin and suffering to become one of us. And he wasn't about to quit now. His strongest steps were his last. At any step along the way, Jesus could have called it quits. At any point, he could have said, that's enough, I'm going home now. But he didn't. He didn't because he is love. 
And when you look at this kind of timeline and you look at the journey and the experiences and the feelings and the emotions of Jesus' heart through the week, it made me think, what if instead of words on these chairs, they were notes, they were quavers and crotchets and things. And I think what a beautiful melody that would have played if these were, you know, anthems and notes and melodies and tunes and what an incredible song this would have been. The life song of Jesus had only one tune, didn't it? It only had one melody. It was an extraordinary passion for the people and the purposes of God. That is the life song that is Jesus that runs through his heart, that runs through this passion week, is a passion for people and the purposes of God. We're going to sing in just a moment And we're going to sing Praises Rising. We're going to sing Hosanna, which is echoing of some of the words that were from Palm Sunday that they welcomed him in with. And I just want to say one final thing, which is to do with why this calendar reads slightly weirdly. And I know some of you have been a bit traumatized by the fact that it goes backwards. When I originally thought about laying it out like this, I don't know whether it was Dan or somebody else speaking to the way, I said it just with my OCD-ness and my wanting things to be chronologically, it doesn't work quite right for me. It goes backwards. You know, I wanted to start with Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And could we now move the tomb over here, maybe put the worship over there, so that my illustration would flow in the correct kind of logical order? Clearly, that wasn't possible. But as I thought that, actually, this little thing just dropped into my mind. Because actually, what we see here is quite significant. Because actually, what happened in Passion Week, what happened towards the tomb, the death and resurrection, was a reversal of time. Because way, way back at the very beginning of time, in Genesis, before time began, life was incredible, perfect, relationship with God, everything was as it should be. But then sin came in and everything, and through the history of time, life got really messed up and broken. And then Jesus came, and at Christmas we celebrate his arrival. But then we celebrate him coming again. And actually, what he does this week is he walks towards setting time back. Setting it back to what it could be. Setting it back towards having a relationship with God. Hope being fulfilled. Healing being possible. Breakthrough being possible. Relationship with God being possible. It's the great time reversal. Jesus was setting life back to how it was originally meant to be. Isn't that extraordinary?